Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Got to say, this is a pretty cool job hosting the best in the world for Richard Parr, getting the opportunity to speak to Olympic and world champions to find out what they do differently from the rest of us to become the very best in their sport. It's really, really good. And I'm pumped for another episode this week. And we're with another rower. We've had a few rowers on the program before. And once again, there are some fantastic knowledge bombs. Yes, we get some amazing insight from the world champion rower, Annie Vernon. Yes, Annie is a two-time world champion and an Olympic silver medalist. We talk about her disappointment at the Beijing Olympics in 2008. We talk about the difference between a two-person boat and a team of eight and how that relationship can differ in those different boats. We talk about the difficulty of retiring and what is next for a sports person or an athlete once they decide to give up on their sport. Annie, of course, retired back after the 2012 Olympics. And we discuss her diet. We also discuss the importance of Henley, Henley Royal Regatta. And Annie calls it one of the most incredible sporting events in the country. It's a really fun chat with Annie. It's all coming up on The Best in the World in just a moment. Before we get there, I want to tell you about Sportuccino. Sportuccino is the sports chat show that I host every single weekday at sportuccino.com. Each day has a different theme. On a Monday, we review the big sports action at the weekend. On a Tuesday, we look at health and fitness and nutrition. On a Wednesday, we talk WWE wrestling and everything to do with the world of wrestling. On a Thursday, we're looking at the sports business industry. And on a Friday, we look ahead to another fantastic weekend of sports. So that is all on sportatchino.com. If you think it's up your alley, go and check it out also like us on facebook facebook.com forward slash sportachino now on that show i get to interview top people every single week but they don't go much better than the guests we have here on the best in the world with richard parr and i'm delighted to say coming up next is the world champion rower annie vernon the best in the world podcast with richard parr
Annie Vernon, two-time rowing world champion, Olympic silver medalist. Welcome to the best in the world with Richard Barth. So glad to have you on the show. Let's start with what you're up to now. Of course, you retired four years ago. Why don't you get people up to date of what you've been up to since then? So since I retired, I clearly, like most athletes, spent a lot of time catching up on my socialising straight away. So all those years of, of not going out and not seeing your friends had to be had to be rectified. So I spent a good three months kind of ruining my body straight after the Olympics. Uh, since then, I spent a bit of time as a rowing coach. Um, and then I've set up my own career doing a bit of sports journalism, a bit of corporate speaking. And I work for a couple of charities doing kind of youth, youth work and, and, and sport. And I've just been given a contract to write a book. That's my current project. Oh, fantastic. We'll talk about the book a little bit more later in the show, but so many different things. Do you have a favourite, one of those things that you're up to? I suppose that's one of the things that it's it's the hardest to adjust to, because when you're doing sport for your living, and particularly these days that everyone's professional and lottery funded and full time, is you really do just have one goal in your life. So everything you're doing, every little decision you make every day is defined in terms of, of that goal. Is this going to make me a better rower? Is this going to make me uh, give me a better chance of, of winning the Olympic Games. Whereas when you retire, suddenly there's there's loads of different goals and you have lots of different objectives in life. Um, so I suppose for me, juggling my kind of three-strand three strand career, it's quite challenging, but at the same time, I really like it because it's such a difference to what I was doing before. Yeah, I was wondering if that might be frustrating at times because, you know, getting pulled in three different ways. Um, I, I suppose it means I'm master of my own destiny to an extent, so I can... <laughs> Do more of the things I like and, and do less of the things I don't like as much. You, you mentioned you, you kind of enjoyed the good times after you retired. How difficult was that change from being an Olympic star to what some would say a normal person? I think it's it, it challenges you in, in lots of different ways. And I suppose I went to two Olympic Games. I was lucky enough to go to the Beijing Olympics as well as the London Olympics. And I found that period after Beijing just absolutely awful. At that point, I didn't know if I wanted to carry on or not. But I really felt like the world had been turned upside down and I didn't know which way was up and I didn't know which way was down. So I, I think going into London, I knew that not only it was going to be my last Games that I'd definitely, definitely retire, but also I knew that I had to plan for that post-Olympic period. I didn't want to be in the same hole I was after Beijing. So I planned loads of different uh, social activities. I went on a few holidays. Um, I organised a huge rowing event in Cornwall, which is where I'm from, uh, about a month after the Games, which took up virtually all of my time between the Olympics and the event. Um, I planned loads of work experience. Um, I had coffees with hundreds of different people to talk about various career options. So I think it wasn't really until Christmas that but all of that ran out. And by that point, you know, I was a bit more ready to, to take the next step. But I, I suppose the thing about retiring from elite sports is it really does change you in every possible way. I mean, everybody who's done a demanding job will know that, that change is difficult. But I think when you've done sports, you it, it's a physical activity. So once you stop doing that, you're not training every day. So you know, your appetite changes, your need for sleep changes, your body shape changes a lot. Um, how you feel after doing exercise, you don't have that anymore. So not only does your conception of yourself and your identity change, but in quite a physical way, every single day, your lifestyle is completely different. You know, I went from needing to sleep about 10 hours out of every 24 to a normal amount, you know, seven or eight hours a night. Um, I went from needing to eat 5,000 calories a day 
to what is a normal amount of 2,000 a day. So, mm-hmm. so suddenly everything changes and, and, and it, it does take a lot of adjusting to. But like I said, I, I was really well supported by um, the British rowing team through that period and, and having had quite a low time after my first Olympics, I, I set myself up for a bit more proactively for my second, second experience. There's a few things we want to go into a bit more detail there because there's so much good information there to help us become the best in the world. But let's just explain to some of our listeners who don't know actually why you were so disappointed in in the 2008 Beijing Olympics. It was a silver medal. Now a lot of people would say that oh wow it's a, it's a silver medal it's it's incredible. But why don't you just explain what happened and just how you felt when when you you got silver and, and missed out on the gold. It, it was hugely disappointing. I mean, of course, from the outside, any Olympic medal, any Olympic performance, being an Olympian is unbelievable. And it's, it's, it's a privilege that should never be taken for granted. And, and as if somebody had said to my 15 year old self, one day, not only will you go to the Olympics, but you'll stand on the podium. I mean, goodness, I would have thought I would have laughed in their face and would have grabbed it with both hands. But as an athlete, you're there to do a job. Um, we went into that Olympic Games as the reigning world champions. Uh, we wanted to win. We'd set our sights on winning. We'd tra- trained for four years with the intention of being good enough to win. Uh, and we were good enough to win, but we got we didn't row well on the day. We didn't have our best performance. Um, and quite rightly, we were beaten by a better crew. So I think, of course, you know, as, as time goes on, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the fact that I'm an Olympic medalist. But purely as an athlete, as someone who's there to do a job and is a professional and highly trained and highly skilled in that job, um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we let ourselves down and we should have been faster. But, you know, at time, as time goes on, I, I feel you know, less and less annoyed about it and more and more just just proud of the good times that I did have. When you reflected and analysed on the performance, when you said it was a bad day, was there anything in particular you pinpointed which went wrong? I don't think there's one thing. I mean, as anyone who has done sport or anybody who's done anything demanding will know it. If you if you win a race, it doesn't mean you did everything right. If you lose a race, it doesn't mean that you did everything wrong. Um, and reflecting, we we did a huge amount right, and I think we would have we would have beaten most crews, but the crew that beat us clearly pulled something quite special out of the bag in in the last last section of the race. And I mean, clearly you you could pick it apart with a fine tooth comb, but I think in broad brushstrokes, you know, to be honest, we just let the pressure get to us. We we put, get we let the pressure of of wanting to win. You know, being so passionate about winning that gold, that became too much of a driving motivation. And I think we we lost our sense of perspective and, and we didn't deal with that expectation. And it was all all internal, internal expectation. It's not like anyone on the outside world cared what we were doing. But I guess you could say that we wanted it too much and that, and that clouded our judgment. Was there any overconfidence because you were the world champions at the time? Oh, definitely not. I think quite the reverse. I think we probably should have been a bit more confident. Um, because everything was going well you know we had a great year and I think again possibly we had too good a year had something big gone wrong it focuses the mind it brings everyone together it means you have to strip everything back to the essentials again and perhaps we would have gone a bit better had we had a major setback but as it was the year went went really well and I think perhaps we were we didn't sit back and allow ourselves to be confident we were still feeling like we were chasing something and trying to find something which you know with hindsight we already had that thing we were we were good enough but we didn't quite believe it so let's take a look at that that year which went so well and and that period what was it a typical training day like so the basis of rowing is that it is a power and endurance sport 
and the bread and butter of your training is very much that you were training those two parts of it you're training your power and you're training your endurance so you're doing perhaps two endurance sessions a day so for us that is between an hour and a half to two hours either rowing on the water or on the rowing machines and backing that up we'd be in the gym every other day or sometimes every day doing uh, lifting weights so increasing our power and also working our conditioning so looking at our, our robustness our core stability our trunk strength all of those little things that meant we could set ourselves up to go out and and train even harder <clears throat> so normally we'd start training at about we'd normally meet at about 7 30 in the morning um, first session would normally just be steady state low intensity i guess a similar intensity to jogging uh, rowing on the water rain shine wind snow sleet whatever it was, we'd be out there. Um, second session would perhaps be 11, 11 till one, something like that would normally be on the ergos on the rowing machines and then have a bit of lunch, have a bit of downtime, perhaps have a snooze. Third session, four to six in the evenings in the gym, lifting weights and doing all that conditioning as well. So I'd normally leave my house at about seven o'clock and get home again at about seven o'clock in the evenings, uh, completely exhausted, having eaten about five meals. Yeah, so let, let's speak about those five meals. What were they typically? I think if I could sum up my nutrition as an athlete in one word, it would be cereal. <laughs> so I used to eat a huge amount of breakfast cereal all day. Uh, we normally have two breakfasts. So, you know, a big bowl of cereal before you did your first session, big bowl of cereal after you did your first session uh, or porridge. And uh, when we're training, we're drinking isotonic fluid, perhaps eating an energy bar if things are getting things are getting tough. Uh, big lunch, sometimes with a dessert, <clears throat> you know, all just standard normal food, but um, quite a lot of quite a lot of it. Uh, perhaps a mid-afternoon snack before we went and did did weights, something a bit more proteiny, and then a snack snack straight away after weights to assist with our recovery, and then a decent dinner in the evening. And was this all prepped for you? Or was this all planned ahead of time? No, not really, not really. I mean, I'd like to say that it was, but. Um, you know, when you're training that hard and you're eating those many calories, if you eat, if you tried to eat 5,000 calories of healthy food every day, you know, it would be, it would be near impossible. Your stomach would be full all day. So a lot of that food it is perhaps higher fat, higher sugar content, because you need the energy and you just need to get the calories in. Um, and like I said, if you, if you try to eat 5,000 calories of just fruit and vegetables all day, you know, you, your stomach would be would be bloated <laughs> and it would be pretty uncomfortable so yeah a lot of it a lot of it was well I'm not gonna say unhealthy but a lot of it was yeah higher fat higher sugar content but you know you're training so hard that's what that's what you need to eat yeah in, in a weird way once you've finished competing after two Olympic cycles we're, we're in 2012 2013 now and you've had this same routine every single day of five meals a day 5,000 calories what goes on in your mind those few weeks afterwards do you think oh I should be eating now oh no actually I shouldn't because I'm I'm going to put on so much weight like, how does that work or do you just go actually I just don't need to do this anymore um I think everyone struggles and certainly if you meet up with people six to twelve months after they've retired you can see the ones who have, <laughs> have struggled <laughs> to stop eating um, uh, for me, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't enjoy the constant eating that much. I used to struggle with it a bit. So I, I, I liked the fact that I could then cut down my calories. And because you've got to remember the reason you're eating so much is because you're so damn hungry because you're training so hard. Once, so once you stop training, you become less hungry. You don't need to eat as much. So I, I didn't find it that difficult. But 
I think from the size of some people, they do. <laughs> they do. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. More great knowledge from Annie in just a moment, but I want to tell you that today's show is also brought to you by Audible. Audible is one of the leading supplies of audiobooks in the world. 180,000 titles for you to choose from to download for free with a free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash best. Yes, you get a 30-day free trial with one free download audibletrial.com forward slash best go and check it out it's a product i personally use and i really think you would benefit from using it too audibletrial.com forward slash best free audiobook download and 30 day free trial all right let's return to more great knowledge from the world champion rower annie vernon is on the program the Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. And how close were you to the other members of your team? And was were you always close together? And how important was that for you to be successful, to become world champions? Um, I think every every sports team will probably give you a different answer to that. And every rowing team will give you a different answer to that. And particularly... I think men's teams and women's teams will give you a different answer. When things are going well, it's easy to be friends. It's easy to have a joke and a laugh and, and all get on. When things are going badly, that then challenges those bonds. And so I, I guess the answer is you need to have a healthy relationship where you get on and you collaborate and you cooperate. But at the same time, it's a it's a challenging cooperation, the ca- a challenging collaboration. So you can speak to each other in in it in a challenging way and have difficult conversations in order to push each other on. You know, the last thing you want to do is let something go under the carpet or think, oh, okay, I won't make a fuss about this. I, I think we're not moving on in this area, but I won't make a fuss because I don't want to upset my friends. 
you need to be completely honest with each other. And sometimes, yeah, it can be easier to have those honest conversations with people you don't necessarily get on with because you don't care what they think of you. Whereas if they're your best friends, you care what you do care what they think of you. So I suppose the the answer is I was like anything in life. I was very good friends with some of the some of my teammates, not so good friends with others of my teammates, some of which I've stayed in t- contact with, some of which I haven't spoken to since. Um, but the most important thing is that I can have an honest conversation and be open with all of my teammates, whether I like them or not. Mm-hmm. So the way I saw it was, you know, if we're friends in 10 years time, that's a bonus. But we're not here to be friends. We're here to get the job done and, and win the race. Yeah, and effectively, you're all going for the same goal. Now, obviously, the the goal for every four-year cycle is normally to get the gold medal. Would you as a team sit down and, and set smaller goals? Yes, yes. So in, in rowing, you only race a few times a year. So you just you have a few races in the summer. So, of course, you'd aim to do well in all of those races. But throughout the winter, there's constant uh, testing, trials, um, big sessions that, that matter a lot, rankings. So there'd always be something around the corner that you had to focus on. And of course, absolutely, we'd, we'd break that down and I'd think about where I wanted to finish at the winter trials, where I wanted to, to finish in the spring trials. Rowing is also a sport where a lot of it takes place in the rowing machine. So you can very much set your standard and say, right, on this ergo session, I want to pull this score. I want to do this this score on this this test. So you can monitor your your physical progress on the rowing machines really, really easily. I mean, anyone in the world who's used a Concept 2 will know they're all the same. And the numbers you see don't lie. <laughs> um, you can't hide. Um, so, so, yeah, you'd be monitoring your, pro, your physical progress on the, on the rowing machines and also in the gym. And then in terms of all the, on the water stuff, of course, yeah, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be setting pretty clear goals as to where you needed to finish. I wish those numbers on that rowing machine would lie sometimes for me. Um, <laughs> so we, we spoke about kind of your, your training routine and everything like that. What about on days of competition? Did you have any particular routines, any rituals, anything like that? Not really as such. I mean, no, no rituals, certainly, um, because I guess you start to think, well, when does a ritual become a superstition? And when does a ritual become a problem? If, for example, I can't do the thing I always do, if, if for whatever reason, you know, there's no access to that facility or if I don't have time to do it or if the weather's awful, you know, is that going to completely throw me off? So I guess I just wanted to make sure that I knew what headspace I needed to be in. I knew how I needed to feel mentally. I knew what was OK to feel physically. And I just tried to be pretty relaxed and, and work myself into that uh, into that headspace. But also Rowing is a is such an intense team sport that you'd perhaps only be using fifty percent of your attention on yourself, and fifty percent of you would be looking at your teammates, thinking, right, how are they? How are they doing? How are they feeling? Do I need to talk to any of them? Are any of them looking at me and worrying? Um, are we all on the same page? Is everyone on time for all the, all the things we need to arrive on time for? Um, and all just those those little things. So, I would say, yeah, half of my attention was making sure that I was setting myself up to perform and half of my attention was on making sure that my my crewmates were setting themselves up to perform and is that something which becomes more complex when you go from being four people in a boat to eight people in a boat um perhaps not complex because clearly you you can't have as tight a relationship if there's just two of you in the boat then you know that other person absolutely inside out i mean it's like a marriage so you can sense if if anything isn't quite right with them at the same time 
if they're in the zone and they're really pumped up and they're going to be incredible in that race, you can really feel that and, and feed off it. Whereas in a bigger boat, you can't have that intense level of relationship. So it's slightly, um, I guess, slightly lighter touch. So you wouldn't know them as well and, and be able to have that real, you know, intuitive feel for each other. Uh, because, you know, you'd just be exhausted You in the same way that, yeah, you marry one person. You don't normally marry 10 people. Um, so I think you get you get better at, at just staying focused on the bigger picture items in an eight. So making sure that everyone is on the same page, but not necessarily trying to get right inside their head in a, in a way you would in a small boat. Now, we've spoken about a lot of the things you, you got up to when you became a professional rower. But how, how did you first get started in the sport, Annie? Um, so I guess rowing is a sport that you can't do it everywhere. You can't just go down your local sports, um, down to your local sports center and, and start rowing. You have to, you have to live near a river or a canal or a lake and you need to have a boathouse that has equipment in it. I mean, <laughs> and the thing is, I know that sounds obvious, but actually it, that's not that common in the UK. We don't have that many rivers that you can row on. We don't have a, a couple of lakes and we have hardly any canals. So you go to Europe and, you know, they have these huge inland lakes and inland rivers. And particularly in Germany, there's huge canals and there's just far more rowing clubs. So in the UK, yes, they are mainly concentrated in the southeast because the Thames is one of the few bits of river that's for most of its length is wide enough to row on. Um, so I was lucky enough to grow up not too far, far away from a river that equally was just about OK to row on, although it wasn't ideal because it was very tidal uh, down in South Cornwall. And then I went to university in Cambridge where, I mean, anyone who's watched the Oxford Cambridge boat race will know that rowing is a pretty big deal in Cambridge. I mean, I think something like 50 percent of the university will row at some point during their time there. And it's more like a religion than a sport. Um, and, and I immediately realized that rowing was where all the fun people were, um, all the best parties were and where all the tall men were. So that's <laughs> where I took myself and uh, <laughs> Um, so I guess I started off as someone who, you know, I enjoyed rowing, but I wasn't that passionate about it. And then when I got to Cambridge and realised what a big deal it was, suddenly I thought, yes, actually, this is this is a great sport and really got my teeth into it. Yeah, it's funny. We had Mahe Drysdale, the New Zealand oh, rower right, on yeah. the show a while ago, and he was saying he got into rowing because of the parties to begin with and then gradu <laughs> gradually stopped drinking. You mentioned there about how we don't have as many rivers in the UK as to other parts of Europe yet. Britain in general does do very well at rowing. Would you say that is because of Cambridge and Oxford? Historically, certainly, yes. And that's, I guess, why it's had this, you know, upper class reputation in, in the past. Because rowing is it's a very expensive sport to do. I mean, a boat will cost you about the same as a car. You know, you'll be spending anything from 500 quid up to 50 grand on, on a boat. So they're not cheap things to have it's not like you can go down the park and have a kick around for free um so historically yeah it's been the private schools and oxbridge that have really um provided the, that pipeline of, of talent and i suppose the other really great thing we have in the uk which again i really think contributes to our success in rowing is we have hendy royal regatta now i know a lot of your listeners will probably think hendy royal regatta is just this society event where the queen turns up every few years everyone wears posh frocks and blazers and, and drinks pims and champagne but actually strip all that away and it's the most incredible sporting event one of the most incredible sporting events in the country and certainly I would say the greatest sport rowing event aside from the Olympics because it's an event where number one it's one of the most prestigious 
rowing events in the world. So everybody wants to compete at Henley. You have to qualify to get there. So it's even just competing at Henley is a really big deal, um, let alone winning it. Um, but also there's there's events for schoolboys, schoolgirls, lower end clubs, better clubs, rubbish universities, good universities, budding internationals, top internationals and Olympians. And they're competing at the same event. So this would be this would be like a, a park where you have a Sunday league team playing alongside Manchester United, playing alongside Brazil. You know, this is honestly what Henry Rorigata is like. They're sharing the same changing rooms. They're rowing on the same course. They're doing the same warm up routine. And actually, for, for, for young people coming into our sport to even just go to Henley, let alone race there, it's such a privilege and it's such a buzz that I really think for many young people going to Henley and, and boating alongside your heroes that you've seen row at the Olympics on the TV, literally, you know, sharing a changing room with them. I think that's such a draw. And I think it, it provides such an excitement for young people who start rowing that I really do think it keeps more people into our sport and, and attracts attracts schoolboys and school schoolgirls into it. So, like I said, Henley's often written off as just this society event for posh, social event for posh people, but it really it really isn't. As a pure sporting event, it is an incredible thing to have in the com- this country, and we're pretty lucky to have it. And I think it's it's a real reason for our success in the sport. Yes, it must be inspiring uh, racing alongside some of your heroes. Who were your heroes, Annie? Well, when I was growing up, you know, you probably remember the the 90s, Britain wasn't particularly good at sport. So, you know, we won a few medals at the Olympics, but we didn't win that many. Um, and I grew up in, in Cornwall, where rugby is a really big deal. So I guess my heroes growing up were the, the you know, Cornwall, Cornwall, Cornwall rugby players who competed in the County Cup every year. And these are not household names at mm. all. But in Cornwall, you know, Graham Dorr, John May, Phil Vickery, you know, these are legends. <laughs> Um, and I suppose for me, someone who I really, uh, who had a real impact on me actually was when I was a kid watching her compete at the Olympics was Sally Gunnell. Um, cause I, I read somewhere that she was a farmer's daughter and I was a farmer's daughter. And I remember vividly kind of supporting her and cheering her on at the Barcelona 1992 Olympics because, you know, we both had the same, a similar kind of background and she was just a, you know, a farmer's daughter like me and grew up messing around their family farm and, and I don't know, that had a real impact on me at the time. I remember thinking, well, she's just like me and look at her, she's at the Olympics now. And um, so I guess she would probably, I would probably say she was my, she was my hero. But then once I started rowing and started following the British rowing team, it was certainly all those guys I'd seen compete really. So, you know, your Redgraves, Pinsons, Ed Coes, Miriam Batten, Gwyn Batten, all these amazing rowers that I'd supported. And how proud do you feel now that, you are a hero to to many children and, and many young kids who, who want to be not only a rower but an Olympian and a world champion and because I know you do quite a few talks in schools as well is that right? Yeah I mean I, I wouldn't describe I'm not sure how many people see me as a hero uh, I like obviously I like, to, I like to think they do but I'm not sure if they do or not um, I mean I I suppose I was lucky enough to make a career out of sport, but you know, a career out of sport is it's it's a tough, tough, tough environment, and it certainly attracts a, a particular type of ruthless, selfish, tough cookie. So I wouldn't. It's not something I necessarily think it's right for everyone. But I guess what I just try and say to all the young people I come across is, you know, just make sure you're doing things for the right reasons. Figure out what you want to do in life and stick to that. And don't get swept away by everyone else. And if that's sport, that's brilliant. If it's something else, that's equally wonderful. Um, but don't feel like you have to be on this conveyor belt of, of British talent. 
Mm. Well, it's been absolutely inspiring talking to you today, Annie. We've definitely learned a lot. Just before you go, can you just tell us how we can continue to get your great knowledge on social media and anything else you'd like to promote, please? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Annie Vernon GB. Done. Followed already. And I hope everyone else follows you as well. Well, Annie Vernon, thank you so much for being on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Thank you very much. No problem. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Wonderful to talk to Annie on the podcast. As I mentioned to her, I did do an interview with Mahe Drysdale, the champion rower, Olympic champion rower. Go and listen back to that. We also had an interview with Heather Stanning. She's been on the program. Caroline Lind has also been interviewed. Lots of great rowers. And even if you're not interested in rowing, but you want to learn from other great sports stars, go back and listen to some other fantastic podcasts. For example, Matteo Tagliariol, the fencing Olympic champion. Maybe you want to listen about horse riding and equestrianism. Maybe listen to my interview with BZ Madden. Maybe you enjoy long jumping. The reigning Olympic champion Jeff Henderson has been on the program. Maybe you're really interested in all different types of disciplines. So maybe go and listen to the decathlon Olympic champion Brian Clay. He's been on the show as well. Go back and listen to all of them. You can listen to them at acast.com forward slash best. We're also on iTunes and all of the latest podcasts are going now at sportachino.com. Go and check all of that out. All right, we've got another great guest for you on The Best in the World next Wednesday. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a rating and review because next Wednesday we will have another fantastic guest on the program. All right, I have been Richard Parr. You've been listening to The Best in the World. I'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.